Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. Music too? Honey, I live music. Morning, noon, a whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I dig. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until 9 o'clock this uh, Sunday night, the night we get someone to uh, pick the tunes. I apologise in advance for the touch of uh, laryngitis or whatever it is that I have, but I'll be OK. I'm, I'm grateful to my guest tonight because I've been hoping to do this with this particular guest for quite a while because I know he's a music head. His name is Alan Glynn. He's a writer. His first novel, The Dark Fields, came out in 2002 and it was later turned into a very fine movie called Limitless, with uh, Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro. There have been many other uh, novels since, uh, most recently Under the Night, which was published by Faber in 2018 and uh, appeared in uh, the United States in January 2019. I think I've got that right. So, Alan, great to have you here. Thank you. Okay, so we're up and running, Alan. There's nothing to worry about. This is a calm and relaxed affair. Two hours of you picking your favourite musical choices. But just to get a bit of background on you first, where are you from, Alan? Um, I'm from Dublin. Whereabouts? From Condra. Uh-huh. Yeah, it used, I suppose from Condra used to be a village. Um, there are places like All Hallows, there's the Blind Institute, um, Home Farm, mm. a lot of old institution. Bertie Ahern. Bertie Ahern, yeah, Church Avenue. Fagans. All of those Fagans, the Cat and Cage. <laughs> um, it had a village feel to it a long, long time ago, but yeah. it's, it's, you kind of pass through it quickly now. Yeah. Um, so that's, and when you're living, when you're growing up in a place like Drumcondra then, was was the centre of Dublin somewhere that you didn't really particularly go to, or was it just another part of your town? I know town was town definitely. Yeah. Um, when I started, I went to Belvedere, which is practically in town, it's yeah. on Great Denmark Street. Um, so going there, town was just an extra hop and a skip. After that, but I started going into town on my own. You know, when I was ten, eleven, I think of it now on right. the bus, going to bookshops and record shops, and going to movies on my own in town when I was. 12 or 13, 14, when I think about it. I think, if I think of when certain movies that I remember seeing were released, I was 14 when I went to see Chinatown on my own. You did not. Um, yeah. I went to see Mean Streets, Badlands, those kind of early 70s. Well, I mean, while these films may not be entirely appropriate for a, for a kid, uh, these are great, great films. Yeah, no, they weren't so, appropriate for kids, yeah. absolutely, but at the time... Well, you how know, did you know about them? Because you, 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 you went to see... Like really, really, really good movies. Yeah, yeah. How did, um, you, how did you find out about them? My dad had a shop in Drumcondra. He was a news agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw movie magazines. Uh-huh. They were around all the time. So I read, read those. And I think that's probably how I got into an interest in movies and knowing about them. Um, and so were you? did you skip movies that were kind of more geared to your age and jump straight ahead to Main Streets and Chinatown and movies like that? I don't remember really. Um, I don't know if, the, if at that time there were what were the movies that would have been aimed at? You see, I'm not 100 percent sure what age you are. You see, okay, I'll be I'll be 60 in about six weeks. Okay, well, I'm um, 55, so I mean, Star Wars must have been in your orbit a bit, was it? 
Well, that was 77. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But this, this is actually earlier. I mean, Main Streets was 74. Yeah. Badlands. Well, true, yeah. They were. They were before that, yeah. OK, we'll, we'll, I want to move on to music and books after your first, uh, your first musical choice, which is what? Yeah, it's the, the Hissing of Summer Lawns by oh. Joni Mitchell. Now, when did you hear Joni? Um, again, we're talking, so much of what I'm talking about is mid-70s. It was really the first time I became aware of um, certain types of music. Um, and you, you asked me how I learned about movies. I learned about music through the usual route of the older brother, oh. the older guys down the road. They had albums, you know, gatefold albums, and just the mystery of looking at a... Um, an LP that they were listening to and getting into it that way. Um, and one of the guys down the road had a copy of Hissing of Summer Lawns and Hegira, yeah. the next album, and I was just blown away. Still she stays with the love of some kind It's the lady's choice The hissing of summer The Hissing of Summer Lawns from uh, Joni Mitchell, the first choice of my guest tonight, the novelist Alan Blinn. Alan, you, you, so you heard that from older brother, was it? Or? It was a guy down the road. guy down the road, <laughs> yeah. okay. There can be a kind of an, an obsessive, macho, competitive thing with rock music, mm-hmm. as there is with football and sports and stuff like that. I never fit into that kind of thing, really. So I just, I'm more like of a magpie. I kind of pick things up here and there from different people. So, I mean, I... I loved this album. I loved the next album. I haven't followed all of Joni's stuff after mm. that. Um, but, but, yeah, it, I was never cool in the sense of, of being one of, the, one, of the, one of the guys, one of the kind of in the know. So where were you picking up the music then? Well, my older brother um, was a big Neil Young fan. Yeah. There's a Neil Young track coming up, I think. Um, and I heard a lot of Neil Young through him and, and his friends. And then... Other people, it was just you know, you get recommended music by other people. You kind of get turned on to something by someone else, mm-hmm. and that opens up uh, a door. I, I was also listening to classical music, yeah, um, which wasn't cool at the time either. I was going to concerts in the Francis Xavier Hall, you know, where they used to do the Friday night concerts before long before the the National Concert Hall. Um, that wasn't cool, but and it actually was. It was great. And I mean, I can't imagine what Belvedere was like as a teenage boy. But was there the would there have been the usual? Peer pressure in terms of music that, you know, everybody was into something, so you at least affected an interest in, in certain things. Not that I remember, really. I don't think so, no. Mm. I, don't, I, I, I didn't have that with other guys in school. It probably existed at some level, but uh, that wasn't there. We did drama. There was a lot of that, and, that, you know, I, I enjoyed that. But So you weren't reading the music press? You weren't... Um, I, uh, my, again, my brother had... He was a big NME fan, so yeah. the NME and Melody Maker... Um, and I loved actually that. I mean, the enemy in those days was incredible. There were some great writers. Yeah. I remember reading articles about albums that I never heard and still being fascinated. Yeah. The quality of the writing. I remember reading a review of, it was a long, long piece about the rock opera Tommy by yeah. The Who. I'd never heard Tommy at that stage. But this article was so fascinating and it was such a kind of intricate breakdown of what it was about and influences and all that that... Um, 
you know, I, I love that kind of stuff. And then there was people like Charles Shaw Murray and Nick Kenton. Yeah. Although those those papers, they could create a kind of a tyranny as well in that this is this is what you're, you should be listening to. Yeah, I, that didn't, it was kind of above my head, a lot of it, you yeah. know what I mean? I just enjoyed the the wit and the kind of, the interesting stuff they were talking about, but I mean, you know, I didn't have access to most of what they were talking about. And you, you see, your next choice is Van Morrison, and you've gone for uh, Fair Play, which comes from an album called Veed and Fleece, which I think is my favourite Van Morrison album. Yeah, mine too. Actually, I mean, it and, and Astral Weeks, I yeah. think, are the two greats. I think there's, there's, there's something happened in the mid-70s, like with Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks, is from around that time too. Yeah. It's kind of like it's the end of the 60s, but it's the mid-70s. A lot they, they they came to a mature kind of understanding of what they were doing, I think, all of them at the same time. And yet, looking back, they were very young. Neil Young was 28 yeah. when On the Beach came out. Yeah. I don't know, Van was probably what... Well, we could work it out, but you know Late what I mean? He was, he was young. 30, yeah, I mean, uh, but to, to us back then, those guys would have seemed very grown up. Yeah, and they're grown up themes, and they're yeah. they're they're mature and kind of complex albums. Probably, you know, in some cases, they hit their peak, and you know they haven't been as good since. I also love the sound of this album. This is Fair Play, Van Morrison. to you, Van Morrison from the album Veden Fleece, uh, the choice of Alan Lynn, who's my guest tonight. So Alan, we've talked about you going into Dublin from Drum Condra um, to find music and find movies. But what about books? Because I remember those days there were books all along the quays, second-hand bookstores and all that, from very seductive places. Webs, that's right. <laughs> yeah, there were. Dublin was great. Greens, down at Clare Street, Webb, yeah. Tannas. There were a whole load of them. I used to wander around all those bookshops. And in a weird way, I I wasn't a great reader at that age. I wanted to be. Yeah. And I was seduced by the early Picador covers. There was the paperback centre, I think, yeah. on Suffolk Street. And they had a great selection of early Picador books. And I was so intrigued by a lot of these books, like Gravity's Rainbow and yeah. various other books. But I wasn't able to read them. Um, they were kind of beyond me. Um, Have you found in retrospect there were some that you thought you read at the time and then you read them now and you realise I didn't get any of that? I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Graphic Rainbow would be one what example. Was that, what, what exactly was I doing while I held that book yeah, in my yeah, hand? Yeah. But I often, that's all I did was hold them in my hand and yeah. read the back and look at the cover and kind of be weirdly intrigued or mesmerised by them but uh, not actually read them. Um, and I, and I, you I, would judge books by, you'd heard the name of the author. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and there'd be a cool vibe or something mm -hmm. from the, the artwork that was just intriguing. Quite similar to the way you picked up music in a way, you know, you'd, there'd be, you would like to associate with whatever this tribe was. Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know? yeah, yeah. Whoever was reading Thomas Pynchon, yeah. I want to be one of those people, yeah. even though I'm not going to read the book. Yeah, I did read it though, I mean, uh, later in college and, 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 and I loved it. Um, but at the time it was this totemic thing of, you know, what is that? Do you still have those books? Have you tended them carefully? Yeah, I do have, yeah. One of my favourites is, which I did read, was the third policeman? Yeah, there's a Picador cover from the early seventies. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who the artist is. It's a, it's a, it's a it's Ralph Steadman, isn't it? No, it's before the before Ralph Steadman that, editions. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a photograph of a, a man's face, but he's at the same time he's turning to look mm -hmm. to the left, and it's 
both superimposed. It's a very, very kind of creepy, weird cover. Um, and that's one of my favourites. I still have that. That's Swim Two Birds, the original Penguin paperback with the, 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 the Yates, the Jack B. Yates. So when you, come, when you come back to Drumcondra, say, on a Friday evening with a plastic bag with maybe a record in it and a book in it, and you'd just seen Chinatown, mm. um, <laughs> what, 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 um, how would you put all this into practice in your real life, presumably, you know, on your own in your bedroom looking at, with a poster on the wall or looking out the window or whatever? What was your teenage actual life like? My actual life? Your actual life, yeah. I was just a bloke going to school. Um... At home, I, I, I wanted to write at that stage through all those things. Yeah. Um, they just kind of stimulated the, the, the kind of interest in, in being imaginative and creative and doing something. But I just, I, I had no idea how to go about it. I didn't know how to get started with writing. There were so many influences and ideas coming at you from music and books and, and movies. Um, your, your head is just overstimulated with all of this stuff and you want to create, you want to do something but you just don't know what or how to go about it. And how did you move from that position of literally not knowing how to go on, to go about it to starting to go about it? It took a long time. Uh, mm. Lots of fits and starts. I mean, I didn't really write anything until, I'd say, early 20s, mid-20s. Um, attempts at stories, attempts at plays, um, fragments of things. Um, I didn't know how to carry through and finish something. I think that's the key thing you have to learn is is if you start something and work on it, try and finish it, mm. you know, even if it's not great, and then move on to the next thing. You know, you can kind of build up that way. But at the very beginning, it was very fragmented and, and, and frustrating. The, in the meantime, when you were, you know, in those years before you got going, what were you doing or what were you attempting to do or what was distracting you? I mean, did you go to college? Did you study something completely different? Or? You know, I went to college, I went to... Trinity, I did English, um, and that was great. I really enjoyed it, but I wasn't a great student for some of the reasons I spoke about before, um, because like in the first week of college, there was a, a course on the history of the novel, and we were supposed to read in the first week, um, let's say Pamela, in the second week, Moby Dick, in the third week, Ulysses, you know, oh, Middlemarch, Ulysses. Yeah. So I just looked at the list and said, forget it, that's just not going to happen. There's no way. I, I wasn't capable, you know. So I, That's that's insanely demanding, isn't it? I suppose it is. But there were people there who, you know, who had already read all of those books yeah. and were going over it and it was great. Um, so it was many years later that I managed to get through most of those books. So what did you do? Did you literally give it up? Or? No, I didn't. No, I mean, I persevered and yeah. I, I, I was good at writing essays about books that I hadn't read. Right. I was able to do that. And I muddled, muddled through... Um, and I enjoyed it. I had great teachers, you know, people like Brendan yeah. Kennelly and yeah. John Scattergood. And, you know, it was, it was a great time. I, I, I enjoyed it. But I would have benefited, you know, if I'd gone back years later and done the same course, I would have got a lot more from it. Yeah, as yeah. Is, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have that experience. Oh, sure. And when you, were, when you were at Trinity then, were you starting to write in a way that you thought, well, maybe I'm onto something here. I can, I can make something of this. Yeah, I, I'm trying, again, as I say, fragments, but nothing that I, that I have that I can look back on and say I wrote a novel or I wrote stories. It was very fragmented. I, I remember being very torn between do I want to write a novel or do I want to write a play? And that would paralyse me, you know, for a long time, not being able to decide which, which is kind of ridiculous, but mm. I, I went through that. But and the I, one thing you were certain of is you wanted to write. Yeah. And there was never a plan B. 
there was never any kind of, you know, anything else that I was going to do. Um, and I didn't really think it through. I didn't think of the practicalities of it, but uh, it was... Well, if you had, obviously, you might never have done it. Well, yeah, that. yeah. And it did take a long time. I mean, I, the first book wasn't published until I was... Cough. 42. Okay, well, let's talk about that after this next yeah. track. It's, it's Neil Young. Um, there's a lot of Neil Young music you could have chosen and a lot of Neil Youngs that you could have chosen. Um, on the Beach, why that one? Again, it was my older brother, Brian. Um, it was one of his big albums. Um, and just, it's a great album. The sound of it just worked its way into my head um, in a way that it's, it's kind of hard to describe. It's a, it's a beautiful album. You know, I think it's, if you look back at Neil Young, he went through his period with Harvest and um, after the Gold Rush. And then this is a very different Neil Young. Um, he's dark, he's brooding, you know. He's, it's kind of the end of the 60s thing as well, even though it's 1970, what, four or five. Um, it's a very dark. And again, as we said, he's only, he was only 28 when he, when he put this out. But it's a beautiful, there's something very musical about it. The guitar solo is great. His voice is just perfect and it's poetic and dark. And it's just, it's something really darkly romantic about it. Neil Young on the beach. Neil Young on the beach, uh, the choice of Alan Glynn, who's with me in studio. Alan, just before that, we were talking about how your writing got up and running. But, and remind me of what you just said, how long did it take before you actually got, really got going? The first book was when? Um, in 2002, when I was, I was 42 when that book was published. Um, now, I'd been writing seriously, I'd say, for 10 years before that. Doing what? And I'd written three novels before the first one was yeah. published. And do you... And they were, you know, rejected, and so I was kind of going through that whole right. process. They weren't... So none of them saw the light of day at all? No, and I'm glad now. In know, retrospect, yeah? Yeah, I think a lot of people say that about their early books. Yeah. Um, I look at them now, there are bits in it, in them that I'm interested in or would you know, like to rework or whatever, but whole long stretches where it's just, I can't believe how bad it is. But well, that's the, fine, I mean, yeah. you know, that's how you learn. Well, I guess, you know, there may well be people listening tonight who are in that boat, uh, writing and getting rejected, that's normally what happens. But um, that is normally what happens and it is something you have to just persevere with. But to persevere with three novels and to have to bin them yeah. and move on, that is tough. And it was in the days where you had to um, print out and put into an envelope and put postage on and send it off to yeah. various different publishers. And then they that would be sent back to you, plop in the, in the, into the, you know, in through the post box. Um very demoralising when they when they come back. But it was expensive and time-consuming. Yeah. And when I eventually got an agent for the first few years, it was, again, pre-email and internet, it's all about phone calls and sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. And there's a lot of that, which is, you know, stuff which has been kind of taken care of now with technology. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Do you but know... It was, it was a tough 10 years. Do you know what kept you going for those 10 years? I think it was the lack, the absence of a plan B. Right. Um, I mean, I was I was working, I was teaching, I was um, I was in New York for a few years, and then after that, I lived in Italy for five years, and I taught English in Italy. So that's the work I was doing. And then when I came back to Dublin, I continued doing that um, up until the book 
was published and the movie rights were sold, so yeah, that now, meant I could change. So the, I was working the whole time. The absence of the plan B, that, that, was, that's been, that was there from the start. Mm. There was never a plan B. But would you, when you were getting all those rejections, um, would you get demoralised completely or were you saying to yourself, no, I'm confident in what I'm doing, I know, I know I'm good. Did you have to tell yourself? You know, if you understand the question, I'm not sure I'm putting it correctly. No, I know what you mean. I do completely demoralised, or were you saying, those guys are wrong? I am good. I'll, no, I'll, I'll no, prove I was, it to you. No, I, was never, I never said yeah, that. There was yeah. always, it was always, you were demoralised and you were kind of questioning, what, am I insane? Yeah, but you've no plan B. But there's no plan B, so you continue. There's something visceral about writing that I just couldn't deny. Um, and I would always, I think I would, I would do it, I would have done it no matter how many rejections I got. And when I you know, did get something accepted, it was, it was incredible, the sensation. I can, I can close my eyes and remember the physical, visceral joy of the relief that somebody out there read something and, you know, in the publishing world and said, OK, yeah, we'll give this, give this a go. Mm. It, was, it was amazing. It was a real kind of validation. Because up to that point, you, you don't know if you're insane or not or if you're mm. wasting your time or if it's never going to happen. You know, there's no way ever of finding out until something happens or doesn't. You don't um, know, but all the signs are telling you that you are wasting your time. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's true. Oh. Um, but I did enjoy writing and I liked some of the... I liked what I was writing, even though I wasn't confident enough to say this is good, this will work. Um, I, was, I was exercised and, and stimulated by what I was doing. So I think that's probably part of what keeps you going. Well, let's talk um, maybe after this next record about uh, Dark Fields and the Dark Fields and the story of that, which became Limitless and became the movie, and okay. Robert De Niro and Bradley Cooper and all the rest of it. But your next musical choice is uh, Coleman Hawkins. So there was jazz coming into your world at some point as well. Yeah, when I went to live in Italy, um, there was a, in Verona in the north of Italy, there was a little shop called the Rock and Jazz Emporio. And I used to go in there a lot and I discovered it was like a little Aladdin's cave of stuff I'd never seen before. And there was a guy in there who used to point out things and recommend things. And there was um, a reissue of some Coleman Hawk and stuff. And so Italy was, a, Italy was a job for you, wasn't it? That was work. Yeah. And you were teaching English? Yeah. Did you enjoy that or were you like a lot of writers who obviously have to have another job? Was the job an annoyance, if you know what I mean, getting in the way of you writing your great novel? A lot of the time it was, yeah. But at the same time, I was grateful to be able to do it. It was, it was a job that meant I could live in Italy. And living in Verona in, in Italy is, was oh, pretty amazing. Could be so worse, yeah. There were so many great aspects to it, apart from the work. Listening to Coleman Hawkins. Yeah. Perfect. hear a better tune than that tonight or any night that's uh, Coleman Hawkins I don't know where the choice of Alan Glynn the novelist is with me in studio tonight now Alan um, we talked about your 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 struggles in becoming a published writer story familiar to many writers I guess um, 
But then what's what's different about your story? Tell me the it's a story in itself actually. Your novel The Dark Fields. It began as The Dark Fields. 2002 was published. And yet some people will be more aware of it under a different title altogether, Limitless. And that was a movie with Robert De Niro, Bradley Cooper. So tell me how Dark Fields went from your first novel to something else and to being a movie. Um, actually, before it was published, um, my agent managed to get an option on the rights so before the actual book came out, um, which was great. I mean, I'd love to be able to say that, I, you know, I make money from writing, but really where the money is is movie options and mm-hmm. deals like that. That That's more substantial. So, But the timing of it was great because it was my first book and my first child had been born around the same time. So it was it was an amazing and exciting kind of time for that to happen. Um, the movie thing happened, it took a long time for that to happen. Um, it was in the background for years after the book came out. The option was renewed several times over the years. Um, so by by an option, you mean someone buys the rights to your book with a with a view to possibly making a movie out of it? Yeah, like an option would be for, maybe time. for eighteen months. They yeah. would own the rights for eighteen months, yeah. um, and within which time they get it together to start a production, and then they would buy mm-hmm. the rights. Yeah, outright. And the movie business is even slower than the book business. I mean, yeah, I'm, much slower. And I, I had no idea at the time that th- this yeah. was going to be the case. I was told, you know, it can take time, but I I didn't think. And how much did you know? Did you know, for instance, of course. I don't know who bought it, but was De Niro and the uh, Bradley Cooper and these people attached to it at an early stage? No, no, no. That was that was very late. That was late. Um, yeah. the, the first option was uh, Miramax, right? Uh, the the infamous, notorious Harvey Weinstein's company. Um, then they had it for a while, um, and then it passed on to somebody else. The rights moved on to somebody else, um, and it went through various iterations over and the years. And it almost came to a production point. I think 2006 or seven, and then it fell apart. Um, and it took another few years. And while that would be very frustrating, would you continue to get paid, you know, for each new option and yeah, all the rest yeah. of it? Yeah, okay. which was, which so was great. That, yeah. I mean, that was essentially my income, you know, for, for yeah. a good number of years. And the fact that it was being renewed. And the fact that it was being renewed was also positive in the sense that if they're paying for it, then they must be serious about it wanting to make it. And was it possible for you to forget about it and leave it in the background and think, well, okay, this movie might happen, it might not, but still, must have been a... It was hard to do that. Yeah. Um, I, The woman who eventually wrote the script and produced it, a woman called Leslie Dixon, she came on board, I'd say, after about two or three years. Um, and so she was my point of contact from that point on. Yeah. And because she was a writer, she was very sympathetic to my position as kind of the writer out there not knowing what's going on. So she always kept me in touch with what was going on. I could email her and ask her any, any developments, whatever, and she would let me know. Whereas other people's experience would be that you just would have no contact at all. You wouldn't know. And how did you approach all of that? I mean, you know, there's money coming in, so, you know, you don't want to mess with it. But at the same time, it's your book. Uh, did, some writers I know are quite happy to say, go ahead, do what you want, but there's nothing to do with me. I wrote a novel, you write a screenplay, <laughs> off yeah. you go. And some of them, of course, want to be heavily involved. Some of them actually want to write the screenplay, and that's often successful. Um, what was your, what way was your head working in relation to this? Um, I didn't want to write a, a screenplay. I didn't know how to. I hadn't done it, so it would have been, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been left, if you like, do it by the, the company who had optioned it. Mm. Um, so that wasn't really, a that wasn't on the cards. Um, and when Leslie came on board, she wrote a script fairly quickly. And so I think it was 2003 or four. there was a script there. 
which I she let me read, and I was very happy with it. It was a, it was a very faithful adaptation of the book. So I was kind of from that point on, I was able to relax, knowing that she was her her take on it was was good. And, and would you have cared? You know, seriously, would you have cared if she'd introduced some? Okay, I see what you mean. Really yeah, yeah. didn't. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, absolutely, around. I would yeah. have. If, I mean, it didn't happen, so I don't know to what degree I would yeah. have gone. You know, bonkers about it. Um, I mean, when they later on suggested changing the title, I wasn't happy about that at all. I had a real sense of, right. oh, the title is important. Um, so if they had started messing with, you know, the structure, the, the ideas in it early on, maybe I would have been very unhappy. But I, th- that I didn't know. happen. Yeah, you know. yeah. And and the title was changed to Limitless. And that, that's how it appeared as, as the movie. And then subsequent reissues of the book, then yeah, Limitless same. was yeah. the title. So it's a sacrifice worth making, I'd say. I know it was worth making. I mean, I got used to the title fairly quickly. Yeah. That's actually a good title. It's a good it works. title. It's a good title. Um, and then, you know, it must have been. It must have been really. You must have got a buzz out of it. Someone who went to see Mean Streets as a kid, you know, to have De Niro. Oh, stop! It, I mean, it was incredible. Words, it was, yeah. it, and it came very late in the, the the production was starting, and they had cast Bradley Cooper, and you know, the production office was set up, and they had a schedule. And it was very late in the day when I got an email from Leslie saying that they'd approached De Niro for a part and he'd, he'd accepted. I just, it was amazing. I mean, as you say, I remember seeing De Niro as Johnny Boy in Mean Streets mm. way back. I mean, that was one of the most dangerous performances I'd ever seen on a, on a screen. He was incredible. And the idea that he, many years later, was, was playing a part in something I'd written, um, a small enough part, but it was great. It was, it was thrilling. Did you get to meet any of these people? Um, I spent a week on the set in 2010 when they were making it. I met Bradley Cooper a few times, yeah. briefly. Yeah, you know, and he was lovely. He was really nice, very friendly. I didn't meet De Niro. He was at the. I was at the premiere, and he was there. He was a few rows behind me in the cinema. At least he was um, behind you. That's yeah. Right. And I, the thing is, if I were there now, I would walk up to him and introduce myself. Whatever I did at the time, I was nervous. You know, before people were sitting down, they were standing around, and he was over there at the other side of the room. I could have just walked over to him. Um, and I didn't, and I was kind of kicking myself afterwards. Definitely. Now I would do it, though. Yeah. I would walk up and, you know, because, you know, who cares? But he was there in the room, and, you know, he, he spoke and he lines been, that are in the book. Yes, and he wouldn't have been there if, if only if, if you hadn't written the book. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. Now, we're going to, we'll play another um, another track, and we come back to some of this in a minute. Um, you, we've just played Coleman Hawkins, and now we're going to play Django Reinhardt. So, you were finding some old music in different places. Yeah. Where did you find Django? Was that in Italy as well, or was that? Um, it was. Well, I had a friend in college, an American guy, who was a big Django fan, and I listened to a lot um, through him. But I hadn't bought any of it until I went to Italy and found this little jazz shop, and I found a few, a few of the records, and um, I f- fell in love with Django. Django Reinhardt there and I'll see you in my dreams. The choice of Alan Glynn, the novelist, who's with me in studio tonight, picking all the tunes. Um, Alan, talking about the, the just before that piece of music and about how a book of yours, The Dark Fields, uh, was published, set you up, got you going 
And then it was turned into a movie known as Limitless with Robert De Niro and Bradley Cooper and all that that brings. You said you had no idea how to write a screenplay at that point, which which is encourage, encourages me to think that you had no idea that this book could even be made into a film when you wrote it. Whereas I read a lot of books, I can, I can see the script, I can see the screenplay in the novel, you know, begging to be turned into a film. So had you any notion at all that a movie was a possibility when you wrote this novel? No, no, I wasn't thinking of that at all because, as I said, it took so long to get an agent, first of all, and then a couple of years after that to, to get a publisher who would, you know, read and agree to publish the book. Mm. That's all I was focused on. You were just trying to write a good book and get yeah, it out. Yeah, I certainly wasn't thinking in terms of, of uh, a movie being made. That was my agent who said, well, as part of what I do, I yeah. would be sending this out to film production companies. Um, I said, great. You know? And then fairly quickly... Uh, you know, good news came back, but that wasn't in in my kind of picture of how things were going to be. And what happens after that then? Though you've had this attention and and the movie with the big stars and so on, you've you've got to write your next book, but that must now be in your mind, you know. Yeah, it is. And my next book um, was rejected and it was never published. Really? Yeah. I mean, that was two thousand two. Was Dark Fields, and then this next book was actually called um, Out of Nowhere. The tune we just played, a while yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where I got the title, um, and no, actually it wasn't. That was that was one of the earlier ones. It was called um, the Paloma Stripe, the one I did after the Dark Fields, and the publishers just weren't interested. They rejected it, and it was sent out to various other publishers, and it just didn't work. And that was a huge blow. Well, it must have been because yeah. you, you feel you're up and running. Yeah. This is great. It's it's, it's going to be a sequence of things. Um, so that was very very hard. Um, and again, you know, two, two small babies at home and the whole thing. So the movie thing in the background was great to have the options being yeah. renewed. There was a security in that. Um, and you, but, but by this stage, you have declared yourself a writer. Yeah, That's what you are. This is what I, and I gave yeah. up my job teaching. Wow. Um, I was able to do that, which was terrific. But, you know, then you're looking into the kind of abyss of what if that's it? If, it, you know, the movie doesn't get made and then the next book doesn't get published. It must be an awful blow because I suppose I'd be tempted to think that once you've had that kind of success... That publishers just with their eye on, eye on the money, for instance, would just publish just about anything you'd write after that. Yeah, well, the, I've well, seen it. I've seen it with other people. Yeah, I know, but the thing is, the Dark Fields didn't sell particularly well. It wasn't a huge kind yeah. of. It wasn't a bestseller by any means, and the movie hadn't been made at that point. Ah, sure, so it's not like you know the profile was yeah. was huge. So that that was tough. But then I, you know, I kept at it as before. You know, there was no plan B. So I wrote another novel, which became Winterland. Um, which I finished in two, 2009 and that was picked up by an American publisher first and then Faber picked it up. Um, and that, that, the relief of that was again huge, you know. It was validation again. I, you know, it wasn't just a, a one-off, I can do it. And, ag a, and again, the route seems, it seems strange that an American publisher would come yeah, first. and because it was rejected. Winterland was rejected by Irish publishers, by a whole rake of British publishers. Um, you know, they liked it, but, yeah. you know, whatever the reasons are. And um, this, this editor in um, in Macmillan in New York got his hands on it, I don't know how, um, rang up my agent and said, I really like this, I want to work on it. I'd say um, that, that one saved your career, that one. It did. You know, and I got on the phone to the guy, you know, I was he was giving my number and we I chatted to him late one night, he was in New York and sitting on the sofa and he just got on great with this guy, great relationship developed talking about everything, you know, 70s movies, influences, the whole thing. And I just felt alive again. You know, there's somebody who understands and wants to 
published. And so I worked with him for months and months on shaping Winterland and finishing it and, and you know, changing the ending and, and that. Um, and I've subsequently had five novels with Faber yeah. and with um, Picador USA. There are a lot of lessons from your particular trajectory for anybody who's listening, aren't there? Quite mm. a few. Perseverance tough, is the yeah, big one. but tough yeah. lessons. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that must have been a really serious knock, that one. Anyway, look, we'll, we'll not dwell on the knock. We'll move on. We'll play one more track now, then we'll take a break and we'll be right back after the break. But this is um, um, Sketches of Twelve. Tell me about this. Again, this is uh, uh, stuff I discovered. Oh, I think actually this is stuff. When I came back to Dublin from being in Italy, my main source of music was um, a guy called John Kelly All on right, the radio. Yeah. The, the, I can't remember that. The Eclectic Ballroom. Uh, <laughs> um, so many things that I've listened to since have come from 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 listening to you. This is I'm not sure if this particular album or track, but guys like Lars Danielson it's and Boogie Vesseltoft and oh, you know yeah. these Norwegian Swedish guys. Um, there's some great stuff. Not all of it is great, but this is a particularly um, all the stuff. I, all the track. stuff I played was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, what what happens sometimes is I would buy an album. <laughs> Based on one track that you'd played, and the rest of the album would be oh, awful, know. and I'd be like, ah. so every time I listened to you or turned you on, I ended up spending money. <laughs> so I called it the ensemble tax. <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm sorry about all that. There all we right. are. Sketches of Twelves, Lars Danielson. That's Lars Danielson there, Sketches of Twelve. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. We're here until nine. My guest, Alan Glynn, the novelist, is here picking all the music tonight. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. Don't go away. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night show. We get someone to pick the tunes. And tonight it's uh, Alan Glynn, the novelist. Uh, Alan, whose uh, first novel, The Dark Fields, was published back in 2002, but maybe more familiar to you under the another title, Limitless, which was also turned into a movie with Robert De Niro and Bradley Cooper. Then followed Winterland and then Bloodland. I think that's as far as we got in our conversation, Alan, probably up to about 2011 or so. That won Irish Crime Novel of the Year. So there's awards and prizes and these sorts of things too. Awards and prizes are very important for writers, aren't they? They seem to be. Maybe not personally, but career-wise. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, it's always nice. Obviously, it's a validation. Um, It's the only award I've ever won um, or been nominated for. Um, And it it was great. It was a great... Almost apart from winning the award for the book... The night of the award ceremonies um, was very memorable because I was at the ta- the Faber table and uh, at the table that night was also Seamus Heaney oh, right. who was receiving a lifetime award. Um, and it was the first public um, event done by then President, newly elected President Higgins. It was yeah. his first actual gig that he was doing. Join I, I had no idea that I was going to win. I absolutely didn't, but I had prepared just in case, yeah. as you do, I suppose, something to say and when I won um, uh, it was it was a great great surprise obviously but then you know the meal comes afterwards and you're relaxed and it was fine but meeting Seamus Heaney 
was a, a highlight of that night. He was such an amazing man to meet. It was the only time I'd ever met him. He was so warm and um, interested and he spoke to my wife and just being at the same table with them um, was very, very memorable. Um, winning the award was great too, but actually looking back on it now, you know, that night was um, unforgettable. Great memories indeed. Yeah. Now, the, um, it was also nominated for a thing called an Edgar. That's right, now, yeah. The Edgars are, they're specifically to, for the, crime novels. It's American, it's yeah. kind of like the Oscars of American yeah. crime fiction. Um, and getting that nomination was great too. Yeah. That was very good for the, the profile. Now, we're into talking about genre now because this, these are the, the category in which you're nominated. It's, it's crime fiction specifically. Yeah. Did you set about intending to be a crime writer or is that even what you call yourself now? Um, no and no. I didn't set out to be a crime writer because when I started writing, there was no Irish crime fiction at all. Mm. I mean, in the early 90s, there, there, there was nobody. And had you read much crime fiction, specifically crime Not fiction? Not a lot. I mean, I'd read Chandler and Hammett and... That's know, all you Dolgans need to read, yeah. And some of the cosy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, at the time, as a young guy wanting to be a writer in Ireland, you know, you've got the, the giants kind of at your yeah. at your back. Um, so there's huge pressure. I didn't really know what I wanted to write. I just wanted to write. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of... The first novel, The Dark Fields, is... It's not really a crime novel. Is it a kind of speculative fiction thriller? Well, you see, I techno want to, thriller. I don't know what it is, but I want to throw this title at you: Globalization Noir. Yeah, that that was the Winterland, Bloodland, and Graveland. They were a trilogy. Really. Yeah, and they were they they are crime novels. Yeah, I suppose they're kind of thrillers, political well, it, thrillers. But is Globalization Noir your own, or is that a marketing suggestion? No, I came or, up with you that. You came up with that. Yeah. It's an incredible word. I mean, an incredible term. Yeah, because I was dealing with the you know. The, the, the effects of globalization and crime and you know, the corporate structures yeah. and the kind of the dark goings on around all of that and it just occurred to me that you know the, the the novels are set in Dublin but also New York and in the Congo and Italy and various places and it seemed like a kind of a neat way of encapsulating and I mean no, nobody wants to be pigeonholed but but the business I mean the, oh yeah it's very they, much they about want, it absolutely. they want to pub pigeonhole publishers it. yeah the more pigeonholeable you are the easier you know yeah. it, it'll be to market and sell stuff and that's you know, I, I understand that. But you uh, don't seem to have made any particular concessions to that, that uh, pressure. Uh, maybe I should have. Um, yeah. I'm actually at the moment, what I'm writing at the moment is a private eye novel set in Dublin in the late 2030s. Oh, I'm right. kind of, you know, see, see if, if that can be marketed as a private eye novel. We'll see. Speculative crime globalisation noir. <laughs> there you go. Celt yeah, Celtic. I'm, Get the word Celtic in as well. Yeah, I'm making right. it hard for myself, yeah. you know. <laughs> How far down the road are you with that, by the way? About a third of the way through, um, yeah. I write very, very slowly, and because it's set in the late twenties, there's a lot of late twenty thirties. I have to, I'm doing a lot of trying to extrapolate from what's going on now. So there's a lot of reading and research, and you know that that takes time. Do you know something? It occurred to me if you're writing something about the twenty thirties and you're writing it now, it must be kind of difficult because the world's gone completely bonkers. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's very it's, hard to find any foundation from which to move off from. You know, yeah. you, you don't know what's going to happen in the next ten years. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if if you take chaos as the kind of starting point, then you could go in any direction. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to to do the research on it and see what you know what what people think is likely to happen. Big data and AI, I think, are the the key to to working out what's going to happen. But the trouble with that is. It, it kind of kills story. It kills the uh, a lot of the 
dramatic tropes that you require in a story if everything is reduced to what AI is going to be able to do. Yeah. Um, like we were talking earlier about how things like Spotify kind of um, create a, a bland um, mean of everything. You know, there's so much choice that you, you become paralysed. Um, so it, it, it's difficult trying to imagine what things will be like, but it's, it's fun doing it. Well, we have another musical choice and we return to some of this in just a moment. Um, Wonderwall, but not Oasis. Brad Meldow, the Brad Meldow Trio. Yeah, this is, this is, this is great. Um, what they do with this song is, 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 is pretty exciting. Brad Meldow there is version of Wonderwolf, uh, the Brad Meldow Trio Live, the choice of Alan Glynn, who's with me in studio, picking all the music tonight. Alan, when you're putting together these novels and, uh, you know, particularly when there, there, there are, you know, you're talking about big data, you're talking about AI and all the rest of it, and you have to do some research. Does research become something that you enjoy doing or does it, <laughs> does it become burdensome? Um, both. I, mean, I enjoy it a lot, but it does become, it becomes like a displacement activity yeah. a lot of the time. And I've found that um, I'll do a lot of research and maybe one or two percent of it will end up in the book. Yeah. You know, and I buy books. And I, you know, with with Kindle now, you can download books at the drop of a hat and I'll convince myself, unless I get this book, I won't be able to proceed. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I do a lot of research. A lot of it's really interesting, but you have to, you have to kind of rein it in a bit, for sure. Yeah. And a lot of, it's, you know, a lot of it, it's, you read stuff, try and absorb it and then forget it and to the writing after that yeah. I think it's probably the best approach because you know the fun of it from the very beginnings as a, as a child is making stuff up yeah. you know but then research can get in the way of you making stuff up I yeah. guess yeah. That, you're right I, I, something you have to remember as a writer is that you are making stuff up you're using your imagination to invent things that, that weren't before yeah. um, and you have to have the, the confidence to you have to remember that you can have the confidence that, that you can do that that that's what the enterprise is, yeah, um, and the research can help in making things, you know, more authentic. Or details will help to smooth things along. But most of it is, you know, is not absolutely essential. Oh. And I research things, and then I forget. You know, when I was doing dark fields, I did a lot of research into <coughs> financial um, stuff, day trading and dealing with that. And people afterwards assumed that I knew all about that and that I could give them financial tips and stuff. <laughs> I hadn't a clue. Yeah. You know, I mean, I learned enough to be able to. Imitate what that would sound like on the page, and then you move on. I love the way I remember reading once about how the Star Trek, ep- the early Star Trek episodes were written, where someone would write the script, but they leave gaps for right. the the scientific advisors or whatever they're called, which just fill in the gaps. Yeah, yeah. So with, that, with that, the right vocab, with, with the right vocabulary and the right possibilities to put yeah. them in. But uh, but if you're if you're writing as you are now, the speculative, futuristic kind of stuff, you you, you kind of research might take on a bit more. It might be more essential, perhaps. Yeah, because it's research, but it's also guessing. You're guessing from the research you're doing. You're kind of extrapolating. Yeah. Um, partly what I've done is that I've, I've, I've kind of st- speculated that over the next 10 years, um, there's a reaction to what's happening now 
so that a lot of what we imagine is going to happen doesn't actually get to happen because there's so much chaos. Things have been kind of held back. Um, I have a, a protest movement called Hashtag Make It Stop, which um, kind of rises up over the next 10 years and that's the consequences of what happens from that. So that in 20 years' time, we're not maybe as far advanced as we think now you know, we might be. Because I think if we look at the world now and go back 20 years and imagine forward, things are kind of the same. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 20 years ago, we probably imagined things being very different. You know, the future, a lot of the time it's the same as as things are now, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, there are details and things on the side that maybe they change, but essentially, you know, it's it's the same. And even apart from research in terms of going into libraries and reading books, because you're writing this and what it's about, I mean, are you having to pay very close attention to current affairs or are you being distracted by current affairs? You know, something might happen tomorrow which might throw your whole trajectory off course. Yeah, that, 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 does, that does happen. And it's so easy now to pay attention to current affairs yeah. with podcasts and, you know, following people on Twitter and especially with, you know, what's going on in, in America. With, you know, the, the hearings, the Senate hearings and the committee hearings and the... Um, impeachment hearings I, I, you know, I, I watched all of that stuff you know um, and it is a distraction um, but at, at the same time it's compo you're composting all of this stuff as well um, you know you can convince yourself that it's, it's part of the work and it is you know because I mean a lot, of the, a lot of stuff that I write emerges from you know kind of obsession with you know news and things that are going on and things that you're reading um, it all feeds in and comes out in some form so again, if anybody out there is writing and is researching, just don't get too distracted by the research. It seems to be. Yeah, I think you you have to you know get get some work done. Stories from India. We not play all of this because it's nine and a half minutes long. But tell me what this stories from India is. Matthew Halsell. He's a, a, a an English musician, a guy from Manchester. He's a, a trumpeter and a kind of jazz musician, and he started I think Gondwana uh, Records. Um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Music there from uh, Amarcord, uh, music from uh, the choice tonight of Alan Lynn, who's with me in the studio. Before that, I'm just thinking stories from India, Matthew Halsell. That's a good, I don't have that, that's a good one. Good uh, good call there. And the Amarcord soundtrack music from Nina Rota. Um, just, you were talking earlier about going to see the movies when you were a kid. You, you, you weren't precocious enough to go and see the likes of Amarcord when you were 13, were you? No, 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 I saw that many years later. Um... The reason I chose that is because a lot of the, when I'm writing, when I'm working, um, I listen to music that is instrumental, not songs, not, not with lyrics. I can't do the two things at the same time. I can't yeah. listen to song lyrics. So most of the music I listen to now is from soundtracks or is kind of ambient or new classical or um, jazz that I can, you know, that I can, that I can work to. I can understand the not wanting to hear lyrics, but do you need music that's fairly stable in terms of its beat and everything, or can it? Can a lot it, of the time, yeah. Like uh, I'm attracted to stuff that will be um, low tempo, 
um, maybe with a good rhythm and almost inclining towards silence, you know. Yeah. Stuff like Morton Feldman. All right. Um, I, I listen to a lot. In fact, there's something by him. I haven't got it. I think it's a second string quartet. And it's five hours long. Yeah. Um, someday I'm going to get that. I think that would be my perfect... That's a working day for you. Listen, yeah. I'd say. What, um, is your, what is your working day? Um, I work, I get up as early as I can. I work early in the morning. It's the best time. Now, how early is that? Nowadays, I just like half six, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, when the kids were small, I used to get up at half past four. And do a few hours before they emerged and took over. Yeah. And that was great. I mean, I, I, it took a long, a short while to get used to it. <coughs> uh, kind of a struggle. And then I got really got into it. Um, and uh, the best work I would do would be that early. Because you're not going to be distracted. The phone's not going to ring. You're not going to be watching telly. You're not going to be listening to the radio. Um, and what about where your, where your head is at at that time in the morning? Do you think that the, your, your brain is in a different place? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's 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 more open to yeah. possibilities. You're not distracted by, you know, other stuff. You get up and go straight into the work. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the kind of stereotypes about writers are, you know, they're mythic and fun, but they're not true. I mean, you know, being a heavy drinker, you know, it's got to destroy anything mm. you do in terms of writing. Um, being poor, that's that doesn't work. That just creates problems. Um, those myths are, you know, well, the other big myth, of course, it's a terrible one, but the other one is the pram in the hall, isn't it? That's the other cliche. Yes. The enemy of art is the pram in the hall. That's that right. didn't stop you. Yeah, and J.G. Ballard was a good example of, of the opposite of that. Um, he had three small kids, his wife had died, and um, he did everything with three small kids, and he was writing an amazing streak of, of books in the late 60s, yeah. early 70s. So that's, that's another myth that could be knocked I wonder when, when he did that. Was it like yourself getting up at four in the morning? I wonder. I'm not sure how he worked. I've, I've read interviews with him. I think he, he did get up early, but he you know, would get the kids out to school and then he'd work all day when they were out. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I did, basically, when, you know, when, I, when they were small. And so there's no, there's, there's no sitting around waiting for the muse, though? No, no. And I mean, I do procrastinate a lot. I waste a lot of time. And it's very frustrating. Um, I think the, the big lesson people should learn or... I've learned many times and haven't really put into practice is just glue your bum to the seat, as Frank O'Connor said, and write, get stuff done. Um, then you'll have stuff to work back on. Yeah. But until you do that, you know, a blank page is no good to anybody. Your next choice, um, music from Chinatown, one of those movies you saw when you were 13, 14? 14, yeah. What did you make of it, by the way? We I loved it. I was yeah. mesmerised by it. It was just stunning. The, the look of it, the, the, the story. I mean, I didn't understand half of what it was about. The yeah. whole story of LA and the water and the corruption yeah. and the kind of the, the, the personal story mirroring the, the greater kind of story that was in it. Um, I mean, I've seen it many times since. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's a perfect coming together of a lot of different talents at the time. There's a book out at the moment actually called The Big Goodbye by Sam Wasson about the making of Chinatown. And it's a really interesting um, account of um, Robert Town writing the script, the whole process of that, the area, earlier iterations of the story, watching it develop and, and come together, and then the Polanski side of it and the Nicholson side, and Robert Evans, the producer. He brings all these strands together. It's, it's a great book. It's really well written. There you go.
Well, you'd know, Alan, wouldn't you, that that was uh, Ennio Morricone. Yeah, it's unmistakable. Yeah, and that's from a movie called, which movie is that from? State of Grace. State of Grace. Terry and Kate, that's called. And before that, also from a movie from the soundtrack of uh, Chinatown music from Jerry Goldsmith, the love thing from Chinatown. Um, You listen to a lot of soundtracks because a lot of the, like Jerry Goldsmith, for instance, is worth pursuing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Amazing stuff. He was Planet of the Apes, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's... That's incredible. Terrific, yeah. I think starting in the 50s with um, Bernard Herrmann and like Vertigo, mm. the scores he did for North by Northwest and Psycho, and then later on Taxi Driver. Um, it's a whole new approach, I think, to writing music for movies. I've just noticed, uh, not just in talking to you, but watching you while those pieces of music play through. Alan, you're a real listener. You're a serious listener to music. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're conscious of all the little parts, the little turns, the little things that happen in a piece of music. So in that context, the context of that observation, where do you listen to music? How do you listen to it? Um, I walk a lot. Um, that's how I kind of get exercise. And I listen to music when I'm walking, so fairly carefully. But certain pieces just get in under your skin. Oh, yeah. And like a lot of the choices I've made tonight are you know, music that I've listened to a lot over the years. And it you know becomes, it works its way into your kind of your DNA and there's a kind of visceral thing about music. I like to be mesmerised by music as well. It's what I would look for. Your next choice, uh, Eden, Nicholas Brutel, or Nicola Brutel, possibly. Nicholas Brutel, yeah, he's a, he's a um, relatively new composer. People would probably be familiar with the theme he wrote for Succession. Ah, right. Um, this is a film called If Beale Street Could Talk from a couple of years ago. It's an absolutely heart-wrenching, beautiful piece of music. And this is called Eden. soundtrack of uh, Beale Street Could Talk, music from Nicholas Brattel, the choice of Alan Glynn, who's, uh, who's with me in the studio. Just you've quite a few soundtracks on your list, actually. Quite a few. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge resource of music for someone like me who wants instrumental music. Yeah. Um, and there have been you know, a lot of great composers over the last few years. Um, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Bernard Herrmann, obviously starting with and going through John Barry and... Um, some of the greats, Thomas Newman and yeah. Jerry Goldsmith, and you know recently Alexander De Plat and um, Nicholas Bertel, who we've just played. So there's huge amounts of amazing music to draw from, and you know that's the kind of stuff I seek out. I look look for, um, you know, to play when I'm working. Yeah, and are you just? I just want to ask you this question. You know, you've had your book <clears throat> turned into a movie. People are saying now that a lot of the great writing is happening on television. Do you get distracted now by watching long-form television? A lot of writers I know now are lost in series. Yeah. You know, and it started with The Sopranos, I guess, but, you know, really lost in that stuff and starting to question even what it is they do because they think, well, you you can only do this in long-form television now, you know? Yeah. It is an interesting development. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great development in many ways because there's some just absolutely fantastic shows that we've, you know, had over the last few years. But a lot of it, it's different from movies. It's, you know, a lot of the, the series that 
you know, we've watched over the years. They're basically soap operas. They're like really high class soap mm. operas. And sometimes they go on too long mm-hmm. for one or two seasons, too many. Um, and there's a kind of a, a diminishing returns in terms of dramatic credibility in a lot of these series. So the long form thing can be a double edged sword. I think a long form, if you do, uh, they call it one and done, do one series of eight episodes, mm-hmm. you can do something amazing with that. But if you have to come back for a second season and a third season, it can, can dissipate. Um, Would you like to try it? Sure, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, put together ideas and proposed things. Uh, nothing's happened yet. But yeah, it, it would be interesting. But I think if you could contain it, yeah. it would be worth doing. Um, obviously, studios are looking for things that will go on and on and on. But there, I think there are pitfalls in that. I'd like to, I hope that works out for you. Um, there's a globalisation noir trilogy just sitting there ready to... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, it's been sent out, you know, many people have looked at it and you know, it hasn't worked out yet, but maybe. They might change the name, though. Yes. You don't want that. Paradigm came out in 2016, is that right? Yeah. And then it came out in America end of last year. 20, pa- pa- Paradigm was 2016. That was 2016. And then there was Under, uh, the, Under the Night. Night. Under yeah. the Night. And that came out in 2018. So that's only two years between them. Um, and yet you say you write slowly. Very slowly. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could write faster. I mean, it's the one thing that drives me a bit crazy is that I'm so slow. But does writing it slowly, you know, trying to simplify things in a ridiculous way, but does that, does that make it better in that I don't, by the time you're finished, it's in better nick? Oh, I, yeah, from that point of view, yeah. I mean, it's like some writers say, you know, splurge the whole thing out, get to the end and then go back and work on it. Um, and that works for some people. Yeah. I can't do that. I just have to know exactly where I'm going and I'll inch forward and I'll go back and correct and rewrite and inch forward and go back and correct. Yeah. And it's it's kind of slow, torturous process. I've tried to do it other ways. It doesn't work. I'm not necessarily saying that that makes it better. It doesn't. It's just the way yeah. that it's developed. But I'd say your me. first draft is fairly healthy. Then, yeah, they, do, they, they, yeah, they are clean. And, you know, the editing process is, is, has never been that painful yeah. for me at all. It's always been kind of little stuff. Alan Glynn with me in studio tonight, picking all the music. I really enjoyed the tunes you played, Alan. Um, great collection. And um, I, know you could, I know from your listening you could come in tomorrow night with another 15 tracks or so. Yeah, it was hard to choose. Very, very, it was fun. Very easily. Um, there was a few, quite a few things you said tonight I think would be hugely interesting to anybody who's, who's writing. Um, success doesn't come easy. It doesn't necessarily remain once you achieve it and all the rest of it. It's complicated business. But, and it sounds like a corny question, but with, with, with the people in, people in mind who may be trying to write, uh, what, what would be the best advice you would give to someone? Get stuff down on the page. Um, don't think about writing. Don't talk about writing. Don't wait for the phone to ring. Get stuff done. Um, have confidence that if it's what you want to do, that you probably can do it at some level. Um, and the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Um, you know, procrastination is the big thing that I, I that, that has kind of, it's been my biggest difficulty in writing. Um, and if you can kind of head that off the pass, be aware of it, maybe deal with it, um, know, know that it's going to happen and find ways of dealing with it. But really just work, get stuff down on the page, because then you've got something to work with. Alan, thanks a million. Your last choice is, is what? Um, it's called Annie and Owen and it's from the soundtrack to a Netflix series called Maniac and it's by a composer called Dan Romer who's done quite a lot of pretty good stuff recently and this is, this is very nice Alan Lynn, uh, latest novel Under the Night published by Faber in October of 2018 published as Receptor again another title they keep doing this to you yeah, I know. another title in the same book Receptor in uh, 
by Picador in the US in January 2019. And the next book might be, do you know? I don't know. Another year or two, I'd say. All right, okay. Alan Glynn, thanks a million for coming. Thank, Thank you. you, John. I love it. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.